We're going to be diving back into Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, looking at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. That's where we're at in our preaching series right now. And last week, if you remember, I gave a uh, kind of a quick introduction to this passage. Uh, Primarily, my goal in that was helping us see that Jesus has to first be our substitute before he can be our example. And if you remember, if you watched that uh, recorded sermon we had last week for our scattered gathering, I gave the example of how my wife Janet and I really like to do puzzles. Are there any puzzlers out there? Like you just love doing like a big puzzle, filling up the coffee table? Great. There's not many of you, which proves my point. I'm just kidding. I, I don't like puzzles, mostly because I stink at them. And my wife Janet is amazing at puzzles. She has this ability to like, we dump these thousand pieces on the coffee table and she's just like, she just goes to town. And I'm like holding a piece, like looking, like how do you do that? And so in one sense, when we, whenever we do a puzzle, which has happened like three times now in our almost five years of marriage, I'll watch her and I'll learn what she does. I'll see, okay, so she kind of gets all those pieces in the same color and puts them in a cluster. And then she finds the edge. And then I'll learn what she does. So in one sense, Jen is my example when we do a puzzle. But very often, she's very patient, I'll say that. Um, I'll just be doing this. And she very graciously goes, here, dear. And she knows exactly where it goes. Being an example no longer worked. She had to do the work for me. She had to be a substitute for me. She had to do the work I could not do. And so last week, as we talked about that, we talked about how that relates to Jesus being in the wilderness. We often think, well, I need Jesus because the Christian faith is about being a good person, right? It's about Jesus being our example. We just need a good moral Jesus to show us how to resist temptation, how to resist the evil one. But actually what we realized is that we don't need an example. We first need a substitute. We need someone to do the work on our behalf. And that is what Matthew has been showing us, that Jesus is first the one doing it for us. And then we learn how to follow him and be like him. And so today we're going to jump back into that passage, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And I'm actually going to ask Eric Benoit to come up and read this scripture passage for us. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. All right, let's read. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and sent him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Awesome. Thank you very much. So this morning, we're going to examine just the first two of these temptations, and then next week, Pastor Scott is going to look at temptation number three with us. So this morning, what we're going to walk through is first, exposing Satan's lies. We're going to walk through and see how Jesus exposed the lies of Satan. And then secondly, we're going to look at how we personally walk with Jesus in the wilderness. So let me pray, and we'll start. Jesus, we do thank you that you, by your Spirit, are here with us, your gathered people. Thank you, Jesus, that because of your life on our behalf, we can have joy and hope, and even confidence that you will meet us now as we look at your word. And so, Jesus, we ask for help. We ask that, Spirit, you would open our eyes to see what you are saying to us in this text. Each of us in different places, in different seasons, even entering this Uh, this space of this gathering together, whether present or watching online, Jesus, your hand is with us in whatever our wilderness might be right now. And so we ask Jesus that you would help us connect truth to our lives. We pray this in confidence. Amen. All right, so as I said, I want to first do just an overview of these first temptations. So let's talk about, you can think of this as point number one, exposing Satan's lies. I want us to unearth and expose the lies of Satan, like Jesus did, because Jesus shows us that Satan has no power over someone who's confident in who they are. So let's look at temptations one and two. You can look at verses three and four. That's where we're going to start. Jesus, Satan says to Jesus in verse three, if you are the son of God. So right away, our feelers should go up, because that is an identity statement. If you are the son of God, then prove it. Prove that God loves you and just take care of yourself. God would want you to be provided for, right? Just make some bread. So I want you to know that bread here, in one sense, actually just represents bread. It's a very real, normal, not sinful desire. There is nothing necessarily sinful about wanting bread after you've been fasting for days on end. So bread, in one sense, is a very real, normal, tangible desire. But remember, Jesus has been in this wilderness now for 40 days, submitting to the Father, being led by the Spirit into this wilderness time, learning to trust that the Father is actually going to care for him. So Satan is here saying to Jesus, why would God ever let one of his sons suffer in this way? Why this deprivation? Does God really know what is good for you? Just make some bread. So let's just pause right there. Does God know what is good for you? Does that sound at all vaguely familiar? Does that sound at all like another time one who is the accuser came in the form of a serpent and hissed into someone's ear Does God actually have your good in mind? Do you hear the echoes of Eden here in this passage? Of Genesis 3? Of when Satan came to Adam and Eve, the representatives of mankind, and said to them, does he really have your good in mind? This moment right here is the first of Jesus' Eden-type moments. A moment of being tempted to say, I have to choose for myself what is in my best interest. 
because the Father isn't going to be enough. But as you know, because we already heard it read, Jesus conquers where Adam failed. Jesus here quotes the Bible to the devil. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. But what is Jesus actually saying when he says that that the Bible is better than food? No, not necessarily, because Jesus is actually saying, no, Satan, the Father does indeed care. And I know this because he has spoken through his word. And the word that Jesus quotes is the covenant of God, of what God is calling his people to believe. So Jesus says, he will be faithful to me, Satan, in this wilderness, but also when I go to the cross, too. He's going to be faithful to me there, too. Because, Satan, God's people are not sustained on mere bodily provision, but we are sustained on the voice of our creator to us. The voice of our creator who will meet our needs. So here in this passage, in these first voice verses, Jesus is pointing to why and how we can resist temptation. He is, Satan, he is saying to Satan that we, I can resist you because I know I'm provided for. Because I know what you are offering me is not actually my good. And how did Jesus know this to be true? Because he had just come from the waters of baptism. He had just come from a place of having been dunked into these waters and lifted out. And the Father has spoken on him, his love, his affirmation, and put his spirit on Jesus. So Jesus knew that he was loved, that he was approved, that he was welcomed by the Father. He knew that the Father was his true provision. And so, even for if you're here this morning and you have doubts, like all of us do, maybe you have questions about the gospel, maybe you have questions about how can I know if God is even real, how can I even know if God is good, do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is proving to us that God is not only real, but he actually is enough. Jesus himself was a real person like us. Someone who has then come back from the other side and told us, here is proof that he will be enough. Here is proof that he will sustain you. Here is proof that he actually really does love you. He's saying, do you want to know if God really is going to be enough for you? Jesus proved it by shutting down the evil one. He proved it by walking in a wilderness on your behalf, proving that God will meet our needs. Redemption Church, what if we believed that? What if you in your world, with all the things you face, what if you actually believed that Jesus walked into that wilderness, weakened, vulnerable, facing doubts and fears like any human, but he did it for you. What if we really believe that? We're going to come back to that in just a couple minutes. But Satan's not done, though. This is just his first of three attacks on Jesus. Let's look at temptation number two, verses five through seven. <clears throat> Jesus and Satan next appear on the very top of the temple in Jerusalem. And if you have read your Bible at all, or know even a little bit about the Bible, you know that the temple is no mere random location. This is very intentionally picked here. The temple, as you know, maybe you know, represents the physical location of where God and man would meet. 
And even the pagans had temples because they represented. Here on our physical earthly substance, we need geographical locations that mark here is where the divine and human meet, where communication happens. And for the people of God, the tabernacle and the temple became that spot where they knew God speaks to us here. And so it's here that Satan brings Jesus to the top of the temple. And he says, here, Jesus, of all places, how can you know that the Father can prove his love for you? How can you know? You didn't want to turn stones into bread? That's fine. How about you prove that God loves you? Prove that the Father will provide and just jump. Jump, go on ahead and prove to me, Satan is saying, and to the world that this Father really will provide. Just prove it. And then Satan goes even further. He quotes the Bible at Jesus to prove his point. He says, see, look, the scriptures actually say you should do this. You, sh you should jump, right? He's gonna, they're going to catch you. The angels will be there for you. And what's crazy, you've got to just wonder if, I mean, you've got to wonder what was going on in Satan's mind here because he quotes Psalm 91 which if you even want to keep one finger in Matthew 4 and then flip over to Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is very powerful. It's one of my favorite psalms. It is a psalm about protection and provision in the midst of fear. Maybe you've heard some of these verses. Psalm 91, the first couple of verses say, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, You are my refuge and fortress, my God in whom I trust. For you will deliver me from the snare of the fowler and the deadly pestilence. Jumping over to verse 9. It says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. What type of language is that? It's temple language, dwelling place. The Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall befall you. No plague will come near your tent. And then the verses that Satan references. Verse 11. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will catch you. They will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So why? Why would Satan quote those verses to Jesus? To make it appear that his request was both logical and of the Bible. And what is his suggestion? Prove that God's actually faithful. Prove that he will actually be who he says he is. Because how can you know for sure? Unless... You prove it. But Jesus knows what Satan is doing, and he quotes the Bible back to Satan, but it is no random place that Jesus quotes. I want you to think about this. <clears throat> Jesus knows that he's representing Israel. Jesus knows that he is the one who is truly going to be what Israel could never be in the world. So Jesus quotes a passage where Israel did the very thing that Satan is now telling Jesus to do. Israel, back in Deuteronomy 6, where Jesus quotes, was demanding that Moses and that God prove their faithfulness. Prove you're faithful. Give us water right now. If you don't, then how can we know we can trust you? And so Jesus references how the Israelites demanded proof of God, demanded that God provide. And Jesus references that passage and says... Deuteronomy 6, 16, he says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
to prove that God does not need to be tested to prove that he's faithful. God does not need to be held up to our standards. And Jesus, even here in that reference, he's proving that he has overcome where Israel failed. Because Jesus knows that a demand for protection, a demand based on our perceived deserving is unbelief. It is not taking God at his word. Jesus knows what Psalm 91, that Satan even quoted, is ultimately about. Jesus knows that it's about protection, like Satan was trying to say, but Jesus also knows that Psalm 91 is talking about how God will provide. Because you know what the very next verses after Satan quotes say? You will tread on the lion and the snake. Satan missed that part. Because my servant holds fast to me, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When my servant calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. You can almost imagine Jesus knows Psalm 91 is what's going to sustain him when he goes to the cross. So it's here in temptation number two that Jesus chooses reliance on the Father rather than his own sense of deserving. So we've looked at these two temptations, seeing that Satan ultimately is attacking the same thing he has always attacked with God's people from Adam and Eve to Noah, Moses, the Israelites, the different kings. Is this God really going to be good? Will he really provide you what he said that he will? Because honestly, you deserve proof, right? You deserve better than what he's given you. And we have seen Jesus resist Satan. So I want us to ask, where does Jesus find this power to resist Satan? Where does Jesus find power in the midst of temptation to resist it? Was it because he memorized Bible verses? Was it because, well, well, he's God, right? He's fully God, fully human, right? This was probably like his God side coming out, right? See, he could perfectly resist, right? Did he just know some clever tricks for how to resist Satan? No. Jesus found power to resist Satan because his confidence was in his identity. His confidence was in what God had told him. His confidence was in who the Father actually said he was. His confidence was found in the fact that he just took God at his word. He just believed what God had said. One writer talks about how Jesus, in many ways, with his hair still wet from his baptism, walked into the wilderness. With his baptism fresh on his mind and his affirmation of love and power from the Father still there, he knew that he could resist the evil one. So for us, how do we walk through temptation? We've looked at kind of point number one of like, let's expose Satan's lies. Let's see what he's really saying here. But then now let's go to point number two. How do we personally walk with Jesus in the wilderness, in the wilderness of weakness, in the wilderness of temptation, in the wilderness of testing? How do we resist temptation? How do we learn to walk like Jesus did and walk with Jesus in our temptation? Again, even referencing my silly puzzle illustration, how do we go from seeing a substitute to now one who we can learn from, 
one who can be our example. This is where I want us to spend the rest of our time. And I want us to just look at two specific ways that we walk with Jesus in the wilderness. Two specific ways that we walk with Jesus in the wilderness. The first way we do that is we walk with Jesus by fighting to know who you are. We need to fight to know who we are. Friends, if I can be honest with you, brutally honest with you, a lot of us don't really know who we are. A lot of you don't know who you are, and that's why you can't resist temptation. It's not because you haven't prayed enough. It's not because you haven't read enough books. It's not because you haven't gone to enough seminars and conferences or journaled or prayed enough. It's because you still act like you're an orphan who isn't loved. You still act like a child who doesn't know if the Father really has your good in mind. And again, maybe you've read all the books. You've done, as someone in our class uh, that we were doing earlier references, maybe you've done all the things and you still don't know how to resist temptation. So I would just want to challenge you. Have you done business with the fact that you are just as accepted before the Father as Jesus is? If you begin to really grasp that, it changes everything. If you begin to actually believe who you are in Jesus, it changes what tempts you to anxiety. It changes what draws you to live in cyclical depression. Friends, do you realize that the reason, I'll cover some of my language here, the reason you look at bad stuff on the internet is because you don't know who you are. The reason the littlest of things make you angry and you just spin off is because you don't know who you are. Do you realize that the reason politics and things on social media drive you to fury? You're not really believing who you are. Teens, for our kids here, the reason you try to act so much, like, oh, nothing bothers me, oh, no, I'm fine, I don't really care about anything, it's because you don't know who you are. And I want to say to all of us, it's not like, oh, just snap of a finger, just believe who you are. No, it's not that simple that we just believe that. Friends, I want you to see, this is the whole point of the Christian faith. This is the journey that we are on of continually learning to believe deeper and deeper. What does it mean that I'm really a daughter, that I'm really a son? What does it mean that Jesus really has brought me into his family and my identity is now secure? How would you live differently if you began to really believe that? So the question then is, how do you learn who you are? How do we learn who we are so that we can resist the devil? There's only one place you can learn who you are. There's only one place you can learn your identity, and that's through the scriptures. Friends, we only learn who we are if we are informed by God's voice. And Bible reading is a tricky thing, isn't it? If you're like me, you came from a background where maybe it wasn't so much taught, but maybe more caught, that the goal of the Christian life is to just don't sleep around, read your Bible every waking minute, try to do all your disciplines, and that's proof that you're a Christian, right? Maybe you've been told to read the Bible because you just need to do it. Maybe 
you've been told to read the Bible because that's proof that, okay, well, see, you're doing the right stuff. If you're reading your Bible, you're doing good. But what if I told you that you need to read your Bible because it tells you who you are? Because you always forget and because there are millions of other voices consistently telling you, no, here's who you are. And what if by then knowing who you are, you actually could resist temptation? What if reading the Bible actually is about identity reinforcement and not about performance? What if reading your Bible is about knowing who you are? What if all of the reading, meditating, memorizing is needed for our identity so that we can resist temptation. A lot of times we can't really correlate, wait, I need to be doing these disciplines like reading my Bible so I can resist temptation, but how does that work? You've got to see that identity piece. You need to be informed who you are from the scriptures so that there you can do battle with Satan when he brings lies to you. And again, I just want to say this. If you don't know how to read your Bible, please do not feel shame for that. If you know, I don't really know how to study my Bible, please do not live in shame. Please come grab me afterwards. Please come grab Scott afterwards. Please, you could probably turn to someone right around you, someone that you know, maybe in your missional community, maybe someone that you've built a relationship. Ask. Please do not live in the world of shame or embarrassment that you don't really know how to study your Bible. Friends, we want you to know who you are. So you've got to learn how to read your Bible. And along with reading the Bible as a way to learn to do battle in the wilderness, friends, you've also got to learn how to talk to yourself. You've got to learn to talk to yourself. And I'm kind of speaking to all of us, but specifically to us millennials and younger. For many of us, we face temptation, we face obstacles, we face things that seem hard, and we just wither. We just say, oh, I, oh, I know I couldn't even do that. We don't even try. We just give up. We tell ourselves, I can't do this. I won't be able to succeed. I can't obey. See, I know these people don't love me, so I won't even try to get to know them. God must be mad at me. That's why this and this is happening in my life. I'll never be able to overcome this sin. I'll never be able to obey Friends, do you realize what's happening when those things are coming into your mind? When those lies are coming in and setting up camp? And that just becomes your reality that you live in. Listening to the lies that just float in instead of actually pushing them out. But in the scriptures and in the life of Jesus, we learn that we can actually resist those lies. We can speak back to the lies with truth. When Satan tells us that you're worthless, when he tells you you could never overcome, when he tells you that you just suck at being a parent or being a student or being a child or whatever the things would be in your life, you can tell him, you're right, I do. That's why Jesus had to come for me, Satan. You're right, I have failed a lot but I'm now covered by someone who never failed. When Satan tells him, tells you that you will never change, you can remind that worm from hell, you know what? I'm now found in someone who's 
business is taking dead stuff and bringing it to life. So the fact that you're telling me I can't change makes me exactly the kind of person he's coming for. The business of resurrection, of taking death and turning it into life, is what Jesus does best, friends. And we need to remind Satan, remind the lies that just flowed into our heads that, no, that's not true. Friends, Jesus has empowered us by his spirit to resist Satan by believing in who he has made us to be. So that means read your Bible. Learn how to study your Bible. Learn how to see what the scriptures are speaking over you. Friends, we do believe that the scriptures are the authoritative, inspired word of God. That means that when you read the Bible, God himself is talking to you. But don't just read it. Learn how to speak those truths over yourself. And I'm not even going to talk about this in this this sermon, but you then learn to talk those truths over each other. We learn how to do this together. But we walk with Jesus in the wilderness. We learn who we are. But let me ask you this. What happens when you fail? What happens when you blow it big time? with temptation. The second way we walk in the wilderness is by celebrating the victorious life of Jesus and not just his death. We walk with Jesus by celebrating his victorious life and not just his death. Because friends, the reality is you will fail. You have failed. You are not yet in a redeemed body, in a new creation where sin has been put away with. We are still in the in-between. So what do we do when we fail? What do we do when we give in to the lies that Satan is telling us? If you're like me, failing often means, well, I better, better withdraw. Better go live in the shadows, right? Better go live in the mud, because that's all I'm worth. When my wife and I fight have disagreement, I yell, do something wrong, I'm like, well, I, I suck, I better, better go leave for a little bit, I live, live in the dark, better go clean myself up first. But church, the reason, if you're like me, the reason you do that is because we have often failed to learn what it means that Jesus lived on your behalf. We always talk about in the church, and this is so important, that Jesus died for my sins. That is so important. It is so good for us to celebrate that we had one who came and died in our place. But friends, what does it mean that he lived in your place? What does it mean that his life was perfect? And now that is your covering when you fail. What if we'd learned to celebrate the life of Jesus, not after we've given into temptation, but right smack dab in the middle of our failing? What if we learned then, right then, to say, Jesus, you lived your life for me because you knew I'd fail in this moment. Jesus, Jesus, thank you for dying for me, but thank you for living for me for this exact moment of failure, for living a life that was full of temptation to sin, full of weakness, but you did it perfectly. You lived as God's true obedient child for me. 
You lived for me. The author of Hebrews, I would just commend the whole book of Hebrews to you. You should read it this week. The author of Hebrews writes about that Jesus learned obedience through the wilderness, through his suffering. He learned obedience. He was made perfect, meaning that he had to walk through life full of temptation so that he could represent you in your failing. So when you sin big time, whether that's your own personal sin or lust or a temptation or anger or anxiety, when you are living in the midst of that, what does it mean that you have one who perfectly learned obedience on your behalf? Why then would you need to go live in the shadows and wallow in the mud? You don't need to. He's calling you to come right back to the party of grace right in that moment when you've failed because he's your covering. Friends, this means that in your failing, we run straight to Jesus. You can see that in his perfect life, we can say, wow, I just blew it. But the life of Jesus is my covering. I want to run and hide and live in shame, but my life is no longer my own. I am hid in Christ. So I can rejoice right now in the midst of failing because I am found in one who perfectly lived on my behalf, one who perfectly resisted the devil. And he did it for me. Friends, own the life of Jesus. Own it in your weakness, in your temptations, in your failings. Own his life. When you get angry at your kids, when you yell at your spouse, when you look at things that you shouldn't look at, when you suffer and hate God, when you accuse God of being unfaithful, when you live in the wallows of self-pity and shame, what if I told you that it's right then that you can run to the throne of grace? Right then, you can say, I have one who stands as my living mediator. He's standing, calling you in your temptation, in your weakness, come to me. I lived perfectly so that even now your sin can't separate us. Come and find your healing. So friends, we learn to walk with Jesus in our temptation, in our failings, when we celebrate his life on our behalf. The perfect life of Jesus means you don't have to work to earn the approval. You've got it. You don't have to earn your spot in the kingdom because the earning was done for you in the wilderness. So now, what do you want to do? When you have that type of freedom, what do you want to do? You can live joyfully. You can live imaginatively of like, I don't have to earn. My obedience is covered by Jesus, so I think I just want to follow Jesus now. I think I just want to learn to be his disciple. In, in the book study that we're doing, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, that the author uses the language of apprenticeship. I just want to learn to walk with Jesus. I just want to learn to do what he does. The, the earning's done. The work's done. Yes, he still calls me to obey him, but I want to obey him now. I don't have to obey to get approval. I obey because I already have the approval. So as we go to conclude, I lastly just want to encourage all of us to walk with Jesus. This is a little bit of a 
lengthy statement. I want us to learn to walk with Jesus by trusting the Spirit's work in your unique season. I want us to walk with Jesus by trusting the Spirit's work in your unique season of life. Friends, it's because we're all in different places. We're all in different seasons. We all face very different unique temptations to how we're wired, to what our past has shaped us to be. What if you're a mom who spends a lot of time at home with a little baby, or maybe lots of babies? What if your life just feels monotonous and draining? What if you spend long hours working? Maybe in a workplace, maybe working from home. Maybe you face unique temptations with your job. What about for those of you who are engaged in romantic relationships? Maybe you're dating, maybe you're married. What if you're someone who wants to be married, wants to be in a relationship? Maybe you're in a place of just feeling bitter. You're wondering why God's making you wait. What about if you're in suffering? What if you've had a lot of heavy losses, heavy griefs for our kids here? For the teens here, you guys face hardships. Yeah, sure, you don't have all the weight on you yet of being an adult and being responsible, but you guys face hardships too. You guys got to go to school and slog it out. You guys fight to be accepted by peers. You guys just want someone to understand you. Someone to just hear all the things that are going through your brain. You just want to find some meaning and purpose in what often feels like a purposeless existence. Maybe you're someone here who feels really insecure because of things in your past. Maybe things that were done to you. Maybe things that you did. And you feel the weight of that failing. So I just want us to close to realize that the Spirit is working in your unique season. Jesus is with you in your wilderness. And as you've seen that he's given you power to walk, to resist temptation, what do you think he's saying to you now? What do you think Jesus is saying to you right now in your season? What part of your identity is he speaking to that you're not yet fully believing? Based on what you think the spirit of Jesus has shown you right now, who is someone that you could tell that to? Who is someone that you could bring into what the Spirit is showing you right now? Because we need community. We need people in our world to walk through this with. We cannot resist the evil one if we are living alone. Spirit of God, we thank you that you have given us power to resist. And as your people, both watching online and those of us gathered here, <clears throat> Spirit, we ask that you would search us. We ask that you would show us where you are calling us to walk in the wilderness with Jesus. Jesus, thank you that the love and approval that you have from the Father, you've now given to us. So we can be the most confident people in the world because we know that anything you call us to do is not about earning because we already have the approval. We already have the welcome. So Spirit, in our weakness, 
in our lack, would you show us where our power is found? Because it's found in our identity. It's found in who you, Jesus, have made us to be. So Jesus, help us as we continue to grow in this. Help us now, even as we sing, to lift our gaze off of ourselves to you, the one who is the author, who is the perfecter of the faith you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.